0: Hello, and welcome to Queerist Fiction, where we talk about queer historical media. I'm Jason.
1: I'm Alice.
2: And I'm Eli.
0: And today we're talking about Mark Crowley's 1968 play, twice adapted into film The Boys in the Band. Before we get started, we have some content warnings for this episode. This episode contains the use of queerphobic, racist, and anti-Semitic language in quotes, mentions of homophobic assault, discussions of the AIDS epidemic, and death. It also contains mentions of alcohol and drug use. Uh, If any of that sounds like something you don't want to listen to, please feel free to check out one of our other episodes. So, The Boys in the Band was, as I mentioned at the start, originally a play written by Mark Crowley performed off-Broadway in 1968. It centers on a birthday party held for a gay man, Harold, by six of his closest friends, all of whom are gay. The parties, interrupted by the presence of an ostensibly straight college friend of the host, Michael— and as the guests become increasingly intoxicated, the tensions between them rise, culminating in a game where each man must call someone whom he has loved and tell them about it. In this episode, I wanna talk about the history of the play's production, its adaptations, sequel, and reception over the past 50 years. I think that it offers an interesting parallel to the history of gay rights in the United States, coming out as it did just a year before the Stonewall riots and being revived in the 90s, receiving a sequel in 2002, and being revived again on Broadway for the first time in 2018. Then of course, there are the two film adaptations 50 years apart both of which featured the cast from the respective productions of the play
1: i'm really intrigued i don't know how much we're actually going to talk about but i'm really intrigued about this sequel because it is not a
2: film or play that needs a sequel Mm. no it doesn't and i'm very convinced that this will be bad (laughs) yeah (laughs) spoilers it's bad (laughs) that was a prediction not a fact
0: Okay, so to start with I want to talk about the origins of the play. So Crowley wrote the play as a reflection of his own life. Like Michael, the host of the party in the play, he was gay, a lapsed Catholic, and someone who had fallen on hard times despite seemingly being surrounded by wealth. In the play, Michael is desperately avoiding debtors, In reality, Crowley was house-sitting for a wealthy friend while she sailed across the Panama Canal, down on money after having several scripts rejected and promising projects being cancelled.
2: How long does it take to sail across the Panama Canal? (laughs)
0: That was my question reading that. I'm like, that sounds like, isn't the Panama Canal very small? Uh. I mean, I assume it's implied that she's
1: sailing, like, from one coast down through the canal and up the other coast or something, not literally
2: just along the canal. Yeah, especially
0: because it it was written as across the canal, which, like, obviously (laughs) would take, like, eight seconds. (laughs) Yeah,
2: she's sailing across the canal, diagonally.
0: (laughs) (laughs) The other characters are largely based on people Crowley met while hosting parties at this, as he calls it, fabulous georgian well hollywood georgian mansion
2: yeah i see how the sky turned out this play it's
1: quite sad to know how much he based this off his life given that it's such a like it's not a positive portrayal of queer life at all
0: no although we'll get into that a little bit later on yeah so yeah as i said the characters and some of the dialogue are based on his life Notably, Crowley refers to the last line from the character of Cowboy when asked if he's good in bed and responds, I try to show a little affection, keeps me from feeling like such a whore, as something he heard from a dancer on Fire Island saying he could never write anything that good. And Michael's line from the end of the play when asked by Donald what was happening with Alan, as my father said to me when he died in my arms, I don't understand any of it. I never did. And that's something that Crowley's own father said to him in the same context.
2: Oh my God. Oh, wow!
0: Yeah. That was, that's
2: a hell of a
1: thing to mine for your play. <laughs> that's such an intense, like that was such an intense line. I was really shocked when I heard that line. Mm. And knowing that it came from his own life, that's just, that's a lot.
2: What's even more shocking is it's not particularly intense in the context of the play, I would argue. Mm, Like, mm. obviously everything in the play is quite intense, but it's not like a big serious moment where Michael talks about his relationship with his father. It's just sort of part of like his little parting scene before he goes off to mass. And it's played quite almost like a deadpan funny line, I would say, at least in the twenty twenty one so for Mm. that to literally
0: be from the writer's own
2: father's death is quite surprising
0: yeah it definitely sounds like he was kind of at a bit of a crossroads in his life and didn't really know what to do when he was writing this play Mm. and he just kind of threw his own life and all of his kind of frustration with hollywood and his frustration with you know gay life and Mm. what society did to gay men at the time into this play Mm -hmm. Mm. yeah the the character of harold uh is based on howard jeffrey who was a hollywood choreographer and dancer with whom crowley had a similarly antagonistic relationship with although probably it was amped up for the play i assume uh because crowley definitely talks in interviews about being like he he clearly has a lot of affection for howard Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. (laughs) Jeffries. so while the play represented a milestone for gay representation in the media especially once it was adapted into a film two years later Its creation, at a time when the gay political movement was becoming more prominent, was somewhat coincidental. I was not an activist, said Crowley, then or now. I didn't know what hit me. I just wrote the truth. As I said, the story was quite personal, and to the extent that it can be seen to have been created in response to society, it was maybe that in writing it, Crowley had deliberately taken up the challenge tossed down by noted theatre critic Stanley Kaufman, who in a 1966 New York Times essay headlined, Homosexual Drama and Its Disguises, asked why that era's most famous gay playwrights, meaning Edward Albee, Tennessee Williams, and William Inger, didn't write about themselves and leave straights alone. Um, (laughs) Uh (laughs) This seems, like, somewhat plausible, especially given the similarities between the second act of this play and um, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, which has been noted by critics throughout the history of its production. So, along with Crowley, most of the original cast were gay, uh, according to Crowley, six of the actors um although from my research they were all closeted and remained so even after the critical and commercial success that the play opened to several of them were warned off the production by their agents uh including one of them who his agent was also the agent for the play
1: oh um that's not a good agent to have for the play
0: (laughs) uh, she was apparently a lesbian and like she was just like don't do this it'll ruin your career
1: so would she have said that to like everyone who was like, I want to be in this play that you're the agent for? Would she have been like, don't do it? Or was this
2: specifically like... Maybe it was based on how... Uh, convincingly straight the public
0: image of this particular actor.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That could be true. That could be a factor. And also, like, where they were in their career, I guess. Yeah,
0: yeah, Yeah. I would assume. Yeah, and yeah, they were shocked when the play opened to success. Um, Lawrence Luckenbill, who played Hank, used his toolkit to install a peephole in the set so the cast could get a look at who was taking the best seats in the house that evening during the performance. (laughs) (laughs) The likes of Jackie Kennedy, Marlene Dietrich, Groucho Marx, Rudolf Nureyev, and even New York City's Glamorous Mayor, John Lindsay, showed up.
3: Oh,
1: wow.
0: Um, So yeah, the play was a much bigger deal than anyone really expected.
1: That's very surprising.
3: Yeah.
0: Yeah, there's a bit of discussion in some of the reviews about how... It kind of reflected the kind of sixties lifestyle. Um, and so people, especially straight audiences, enjoyed the kind of escapism that it offered.
1: Okay. Okay.
0: Um, so
2: a hell of a thing to think about, this movie. Yeah, Do you it have really to is. treat this as like pure escapism. Mm. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah.
1: It's uh, not like a fun escapist.
2: Yeah. Like even if you're not queer, it's pretty No, I think if you're not queer that makes sense. Maybe. In a in an era when like queer people were alienated enough from the mainstream
1: yeah i guess i guess
2: like i don't agree with that but (laughs) i'm like oh yeah that seems like how straights are
0: (laughs) yeah and i think i think particularly in a context of audiences who were morbidly fascinated by Mm. the kind of hollywood elite and you know their lifestyles to sort of give you a glimpse into that even through characters who aren't themselves you know famous actors or anything but like Mm. clearly they're representing that same kind of lifestyle
1: yeah yeah
0: yeah yeah, the cast were clearly very close with Cliff Gorman who played Emery going on to act as a carer and mentor for Cowboys actor Robert Latourno when he was dying from AIDS related complications later in his life. Which Gorman was one of the few straight cast members um, okay. and his career arguably suffered the most being typecast as an effeminate man for years afterwards and having people mock him on the street when he was walking with his wife for mm. the queerness he performed in the show.
2: Mm-hmm. Interesting. I, yeah, I was going to say it's interesting that, that- character of all the characters was played by a straight man Mm. yeah that is by far the campest
1: character
0: yeah definitely and you know um crowley talks about how he was just such an outstanding performer and he hadn't done anything like this before and he just you know inhabited the role really well and proudly mm-hmm. thought very highly mm-hmm. of his performance
2: that's good to hear because it could be a highly fraught dynamic being like one of the few straight actors with a crowd of gay men and having to perform what is the most sort of stereotypically effeminate mm-hmm. performance mm-hmm. of the
0: bunch like yeah that could
2: have been very bad but i'm glad to hear that it was fine yeah yeah,
0: yeah. so yeah the play did really well it uh ran for 1001 <laughs> showings what is that a (laughs) that is indeed a fact (laughs) okay (laughs) um and uh yeah it was Uh, the film rights were then sold uh crowley really strongly defended the idea that the original cast should be in the film Mm -hmm. and left a lot of money on the table in doing so um Mm. because he wanted to maintain that kind of creative control and casting control yeah Mm -hmm. yeah um and some of the interviews with the cast talk about how you know shocked they were to be given that opportunity and then also how it kind of was indicative of how crowley felt about hollywood and how he felt Mm. you know know that he'd been kind of rejected by it and now he was gonna assert his control um and that he was kind of good at playing the game because Mm -hmm. of his prior experiences
1: oh yeah and he can also use those experiences to like give other people opportunities yeah yeah
0: exactly that's good
1: that's good i respect that
0: Mm. between the opening of the play in 1968 and the premiere of the film in 1970 obviously the gay community in the united states had undergone a fairly radical shift due to the stonewall riots in 1969 i think this in part uh explains the kind of mixed reaction the film received from queer audiences uh and the film did not do as well as the play had done Mm
3: -hmm.
1: Mm -hmm. um Yeah, that is unsurprising, because, like, even – obviously, the Stonewall riots didn't cause all the massive change, but regardless of that, like, the 60s and 70s is just, like, a huge time of rapid change in the way that gay people understood themselves, so – doesn't take long for something to go out of date in that context.
2: Yeah, yeah. Um, so to be clear, we obviously said that the play went very well, but when we listed off people who'd seen it, I and mean, not all of them, but like that was not generally queer people in particular. You were mentioning mm. did the queer community really like the play, and then they didn't like the movie, or do we just know the play was really popular, and then queer people didn't like the movie?
0: I think there was some extent to which when the play opened because it was such an early example of queer-focused life. And it it did represent somewhat of an improvement over previous depictions mm. of queer mm. people. Um, like, obviously, they didn't die. They weren't, like, the villains of a story with a straight protagonist. Mm. You know, there were ways in which this was a step forward. Um, and so when the play opened, it was reasonably well-received, but then I think it was... Yeah, it very quickly gained okay, this yeah. kind of divided legacy. Yeah, okay, mm-hmm. that makes um, sense. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I guess maybe like by the first showing, it was well regarded. and Then maybe by like <laughs> the fiftieth, it wasn't. I don't know. And by like, the
1: thousand and once, yeah,
0: th- there was clearly thousand and one.
1: <laughs> what do you say, thousand and first? <laughs> thousand yes. And first, yes,
0: Alan. <laughs> um 11 <first. laughs> yeah as you mentioned there's clearly a very is it was a very quickly moving social dynamic mm. at the time mm. so yeah I mean for the gays trying to integrate into the mainstream the story presented a picture of gay men as too depressed and debaucherous to function alongside straight society and it hardly suited the more radical parts of the movement any better especially given the racism expressed toward the one black character in the film I did read one article claiming that the play helped incite the stonewall riots oh okay (laughs) that sounds apocryphal yeah which stated after gays saw the boys in the band they no longer would settle for thinking of themselves as pathetic and wouldn't be perceived as such any longer now that michael and his friends had brought their feelings out of the closet this new generation would dare to be different (laughs)
1: bold claims claims. i
0: i find this a pretty unlikely narrative uh as i said the film was not especially successful uh the play itself closed in 1970 obviously it did quite well with a thousand one performance but you know it did close Um, and most sources refer to the gay community cooling on the story in the wake of Stonewall I know, for example, that in Australia, where the film wasn't released until 1972 due to our prior lack of an R rating, that it was received pretty poorly by the queer community. It's certainly possible that some gays were inspired by the boys in the band to participate in the protest movement, but I think any claims that it was a key factor in sparking Stonewall are pretty overblown.
1: Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's obviously part of an overall cultural movement towards like, being more open about queerness, but it is a big leap to say it kinda caused that
2: movement. It's just a part of that movement.
0: Yeah, especially given the quote from Crowley earlier about him not being an activist. Yeah. Yeah.
2: So Sylvia Rivera left that showing of boys (laughs) event and she (laughs) went to her favorite bar.
0: Uh, In fact, in an interview with Eric Marcus for Making Gay History, Vito Russo called the backlash from the gay community against the film probably the first time gay people protested against a Hollywood movie. Oh,
3: that's interesting.
0: And I tend to trust that as a source much more highly. Yeah. So thank you, Eric Marcus. Mm.
2: So you could just as legitimately claim that Stonewall, like, brought down Boys in the Band as Boys in the Band created Stonewall. Boys in the Band created
1: Stonewall and then was destroyed by... (laughs)
0: Yes, it is the Ouroboros. (laughs) So all of this is supported by how the story kind of disappeared following the release of the film, uh, not resurfacing until an off-Broadway revival in 1996. Ben Brantley at the time began his review of the revival by saying that it is apparently okay to like the boys in the band again. (laughs) (laughs) So I think that kind of gives you an indication of the place it held in queer popular culture it makes me feel better about it to be honest Mm. it is
1: interesting to think because like look i enjoyed the movie the 2020 movie Mm. but it is weird to me that people decide to revive it it does seem to be such a product of its time Mm. so like i'd be very interested and i don't know if you have much information on this on why they decided to revive it in the 90s
0: I have a little bit of a theory I don't necessarily have like quotes from people oh, yeah. explaining why they did it but there's a bit of info here so much of the dark humor in the story had aged poorly as critic Glenn Weldon put it in 2020 queer theater and queer cinema which grew defiant in the years after Stonewall took on a new sense of urgency and rage as AIDS ravaged the mm. community in the face of the epidemic Crowley's comfortable cashmere queens trading their tired barbs seemed wildly inessential even campy and glib lines like show me a happy homosexual and I'll show you a gay corpse took on a new pattern of tastelessness
3: Mm, mm.
0: by this stage of the original six members of the cast who were gay five had died of AIDS related illnesses as well as the producer and I believe the director of the film
3: Mm. the
0: 1996 revival ran for a month and then the story was dormant once more but even here there were some signs that the story would continue to have a pull for gay men Charles Kaiser writes of a 1993 screening of the film that 40 year old gay men viewed it with disdain saying they were not like that anymore while 30-year-olds said they were more like that than we'd like to admit, and the 20-year-old said they were just like that.
1: Hmm. Okay, okay.
2: I think that's sort of interesting and I'm interested to see how this commentary continues to go as we get up to the remake that happened mm. this year or like last year, I guess. Mm. Actually, <laughs> <Definitely. laughs> um, Because I do feel it's sort of interesting and that like, I think there's in one regard, like we can only really feel comfortable putting it on when we feel distance enough from the original time in which like the circumstances of their life are being portrayed to be able to put on as kind of a commentary on that. But then also like, It's clear from what I know of of some of the statements of the 2020 cast that like the reason why they wanted to do it and felt strongly about doing it was because they felt that some of their life circumstances were still the same and mm. that was why it resonated and I don't know I feel like you kind of have to somehow achieve a good balance between those sorts of mm. things for it to succeed mm. and like that just seems an enormously tense thing and difficult thing to pull off to me. Yeah definitely.
1: I think it's also interesting to think about like you know if you've got these 40 year old gay men saying we're not like that anymore is it that they genuinely don't find that reflective? of their lives or is it that they're not comfortable seeing that as a reflection of their lives because i think that's also a factor that people would be like i see myself in this and i don't like that so i don't like this play or film yeah
0: well i mean that's clearly the implication of kaiser's quote right like with the 30 year olds are saying they were more like that than we'd like to admit
3: yeah
1: Mm
0: -hmm. yeah exactly
2: Um, well and also the 40 year olds are apparently not saying we're not like that they're saying we're not like that anymore that's true
1: (laughs) yeah (laughs) we've grown out of that now Yeah. yeah yeah
0: Yeah, so I think there was an extent to which you know, the people who would, you would think be the champions for this kind of revival which would mm. be these kind of 40 to 50 year old gay men who were, you know, in their early 20s when the mm. original came out, yeah, were really reluctant to embrace it for fairly obvious, I think reasons, and so therefore it, you know, didn't have that kind of momentum that would have allowed it to connect with a whole new mm-hmm. generation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah, the idea that the gay community had moved past the need for the boys in the band was only reinforced when Crowley penned a sequel to the play in 2002. While the story of the sequel ostensibly deals with the fallout of the AIDS epidemic and the activist movements that grew out of Stonewall, a review from Donald Harvey in 2002 describes how Instead, he's penned a work in which the same characters end up defined mostly by the degree to which they've resisted 35 years of social and potential personal change. Most remain single, predatory, and emotionally unsuited for serious relationships. Age has only made more sour the bitter edge to all those snap-queen put-downs. As much as ever, younger outsiders are viewed with hunger and resentment as mere trade.
1: This sounds like a truly awful sequel.
0: Mm. Yeah. So the I think the premise of the sequel is that uh, one of the characters from the original has died, and they've just been to the funeral, and now they're back at Michael's apartment.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Hanging yeah, out you can't a just kind of wake do the same sort of thing in that context
1: no no yeah. and like I see kind of why you'd want to I mean originally I said I don't see why there would be a sequel and I still don't think it really needs a sequel but I can see why you'd want to sort of be like gay life has moved on so much and we've had a lot of changes in rights and we or dealing with the AIDS epidemic
3: hmm.
1: why you'd want to sort of say how would this look different now but it doesn't sound like it was pulled off
2: well. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like the sort of thing that Armistead Morpin did uh, potentially much more successfully in revisiting his Tales of the City series mm. uh, in the 2000s at some point, which was set originally around when the AIDS epidemic was first starting mm-hmm. off. And so obviously there's been a shift in gay life since then <laughs> to <laughs> yeah, the 2000s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, maybe Tony totally managed to do that better.
0: Yeah, and I think, you know, for a lot of audiences it was kind of Oh, okay, it's this older gay man kind of criticising younger gay men. So there's like a Mm. young gay man in the sequel who represents kind of the activist movement. Mm. Okay. um, Who just gets like relentlessly critiqued. Okay. I see. (laughs) And yeah, it just didn't sound generally great. And yeah, the men from the boys, as the sequel was called. Oh, yeah, I guess. (laughs) ran for a month to mediocre reviews and i think an indication of its lack of cultural legacy is the fact that as far as i remember none of the reviews i read of the 2018 revival or the 2020 film even mentioned its existence
2: Okay, right, yeah all right so let's just pretend that never happened then
0: <laughs> yeah i i do think i think it mainly more so than being a sequel to the play represented crowley wanting to kind of pontificate again about gay life
3: mm-hmm. um, in
0: that you know these two plays are not the only time that the character of Michael appears in his work
3: oh okay. okay
0: the they're just the two that feature that whole cast Michael appears in one of I think at least one of his other works
3: mm-hmm. that's and interesting
0: so, clearly he uses this character as a way to kind of reflect upon his own life and mm-hmm. you know in 1968 that clearly worked and really mm-hmm. touched on something that other people were feeling and in 2002 it didn't connect as well mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. the final final thing i want to note here is that uh when he published the script and its sequel in print in 2003 crowley dedicated the text to howard jeffrey who had died of aids in 1988 Mm -hmm. um which he had previously sort of i think in public interviews kind of denied that the characters were based on real people now that sort of that era was over and it was more acceptable Mm -hmm. to talk about the fact that obviously the people he was basing this off were gay he was able to then make that dedication yeah so we finally get to the recent Revival of the show. Mm-hmm. So the play was revived in a much bigger way in 2018 with a Broadway debut featuring a full cast of out gay actors and produced by prominent gay showrunner Ryan Murphy, um, who I, I'm sure I don't need to tell our audience about, but he made Glee and American Horror Story and <laughs> Pose and a bunch of shows for Netflix.
2: You might need to tell them because you had to tell me. <laughs> <laughs> So, really, just like a stellar track record of queer representation on this man's crew. We cannot take our hats off to him enough. <laughs> Oh. Nothing made me as anxious about this as the fact that Ryan Murphy was involved. So,
1: is Ryan Murphy gay?
2: Yes. Okay. Hundred percent.
1: He's just not good at making gay fiction. I mean, I I'm not say, saying this movie would, was bad. I would say so.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I'm willing to put my. Oh, yeah. Eli has watched more of Ryan Murphy's content than I have. Yes. He is willing to put his foot down on this.
2: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs>
0: I do think, though, that like no matter the criticism levelled by others, and I'm sure by us when we get into kind of our analysis part of uh, talking about this story, it's obviously a big deal um, to have such a production. And the actors seem to have had a great time working on it. So Big Bang Theory star Jim Parsons and Star Trek actor Zachary Quinto had the lead roles as Michael and Harold. And we have so Matt Burma, Andrew Rammels, Charlie Carver, Robin DeJesus, Brian Hutchison, Michael Benjamin, and Tuk Watkins uh, are the sort of other main members of the cast. Many of whom come from a theater background and or a TV background. Many have worked with Ryan Murphy before or some of them had worked together on shows.
2: Yeah, we could do a whole episode Episode on American Horror Story and talk about whatever it is Zachary Quinto is doing in that. <laughs> After we talk about whatever it is Zachary Quinto is doing in this,
0: <laughs> I do want to note that Robin De Jesus was in the 2010 revival of La Cage Our Fall. Oh. oh. Um, which is obviously the play that one of our very early Curious Fiction episodes uh, on The Birdcage was based on. So that was cool. Um cool. He was in it, and also, yeah, Michael Benjamin Washington, who plays Bernard, uh, was also in it, I think, playing the same role. So they must have just been there on, at different times. Oh, okay. Uh-huh. So the Broadway revival had a very positive reception. Robin de Jesus was nominated for a an Tony, and um. the production won the Tony for, I think, Best Revival in 2019 with Mark Crowley getting to come up on stage and receive the award oh, that's he nice. teared up he, he said that he hadn't written a speech but Aww. he had he did have a list of who to, who to thank oh and he couldn't read it because he was too teary that's cute yeah. yeah i want to ask actually
2: while we're mentioning emory's actor if emory's actor in the original off-broadway slash film adaptation was a white actor or if he was also latino uh just
0: because Yeah, so Cliff Gorman was Jewish. Uh, I don't believe he was Latino. Okay, okay.
2: I guess that could probably preserve something of the same dynamic then, given adjustment for time.
0: Yeah, we'll get into a bit of the interactions between Emery and Bernard in the story and how, yeah, I do think the framing of that is different in the 2020 version. Okay, yeah. Because of the fact that the actor playing Emery is Puerto Rican, and therefore that carries a different context. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, cool. So, yeah, I mean, as we've talked about, Ryan Murphy is obviously a big influential showrunner, um, and he particularly has a very prominent deal with Netflix to make shows for them. And so I think this helped him get this production made into a film. So, like, you know, as much as we can criticize him, I do appreciate that he's using his influence to be like, gay or gay yeah look
2: he is doing that no (laughs) one can say that he's not
0: (laughs) and the film was dedicated to mark crowley who died in march of 2020 Kind of after I think the film had wrapped. It's directed by gay stage actor Joe Mantello. I
2: do like that There's Just Gay All the Way Down. Oh yeah. yeah. Like <laughs> that goes a long way towards making me give this film a chance. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Mm.
0: So that's kind of the history of the production of The Boys in the Band mm-hmm. um, from 1968 until now. So I wanted to talk a bit now about the story itself and kind of unpack that a little bit. We're not gonna do a big plot summary in this episode there are many different versions of this production that you can watch
1: it's not really a plot heavy story anyway like it's a character story if you know who the characters are and you know they spend the entire time in a room together that's kind of all you need to know yeah
0: yeah so the first thing i wanted to talk about was kind of how the story particularly in the context of being released in 1968 shows us While there are archetypes to the characters, it definitely showed a greater variety of gay archetypes than I think we would kind of seen in Mm -hmm. other movies of the time or Mm -hmm. other pieces of media. So you've got your kind of fashion conscious older men like Michael and Harold. You've got a very effeminate, over-the-top queer man in Emery. You've got Donald, who is clearly somewhat trying to renounce the gay lifestyle by moving away from New York. Um, although we can talk a little bit more later about what exactly is going on with Donald because I was a little confused myself you've got the character of Cowboy who represents, uh, you know, I referred to earlier trade, the young fit gays who older men alternately prey on and mock relentlessly for their naivete and vulnerability mm. um, there's Hank who passes due to his more masculine demeanor and bisexuality and who left his wife to be with Larry Larry himself represents the kind of free love movement of the 60s with his aversion to monogamy and you know finally we have Bernard who somewhat represents the fetishization of black men in gay circles and certainly in the play represents the ways that one oppressed minority can look down on another to make themselves feel better.
3: Hmm.
0: I think the key here is that none of these are particularly positive stereotypes and certainly to some extent that makes sense in the context of the film, which was released under a Hollywood that was um, still kind of under the effects of the Hays Code, um, whereby you couldn't represent gay people in a positive light.
3: Mm. Um, The
0: only way you were allowed to present them was negatively. But I do think that's giving Crowley a pass Mm. for something, given that he wrote it as a play. Yeah. plays were not under the same kind of restrictions
2: yeah and i guess like at best those things represent crowley examining the effects of like contemporary society on this minority and kind of like the roles that it forces them into mm. uh, and has like that bit of a more multifaceted look at what are essentially stereotypes and at worst they're just shallow and nasty
1: But all those stereotypes are kind of stereotypes about how gay people interact with straight society as well. Like, they're not just stereotypes about gay people. So I can see why he wanted to use these to kind of explore what society did to gay people or forced gay people to be in the 60s.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think, yeah... That's both of you are really spot on in terms of what I was about to say. Um, yeah, this realistic portrait of the lives of gay men certainly resonated with many in the community. To them, the pain of the characters in the story is clearly a result of a society which shuns mm-hmm. them. Mm. But to audiences and critics, particularly straight audiences and critics, mm. it often merely affirmed their rejection of the gay lifestyle. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So life critic Richard Schickel put it as follows, tacky, tawdry, repellent, and true.
2: Wow. Screw you. Yeah. Wow, okay. I do think that, like, to read it as a representation just of, like, the essentialist trait of the gaze Mm. does require you to kind of not read the film entirely, honestly. Like, there's there's times where, and, you know, we can talk about if that's done enough, Mm. where, like, it's very, very blatant that this is the effect of homophobia. I, I don't want to blame the reaction of critics like that solely on Crowley because, like, that's not fair. My no, mm. no, sorry. So
1: I think most often when they're kind of talking about how this is the effects of homophobia, the way the characters express it is often like, I wish I wasn't gay or I've tried to not be gay or that kind of thing and like i think as a queer person it's easy to see i wish i wasn't gay because of how awful it is in society but as a straight person you could be like oh yeah they wish they weren't gay because look what gays are like like i can see how you could misread that i don't think it would be 100 percent in good faith but i could see how you could create that reading for yourself
0: yeah and certainly you know nearly the entire cast of characters confesses a degree of self-loathing throughout Mm. the story you know which is a primary focus of a lot of their unhappiness um and is made apparent for most characters even before the arrival of Alan and the drunken party game which follows. Obviously this is evidenced in perhaps the most famous line as I mentioned earlier show me a happy homosexual and I'll show you a gay corpse.
2: Does that quote come from here? Yes. Well that's very meta of him then how that's put into the play.
0: Yeah I do wonder if he kind of intended that to be a you know snappy iconic line. Um, I
1: mean I Mm, guess so. Yeah. Yeah. I think he would have like it It obviously is one of the key lines in the play so yeah.
2: yeah and i guess it goes along well with that whole this isn't like the theater gay mm. people don't always kill themselves at the end yeah sort yeah of line. I, like that's not verbatim but you know it was essentially that yeah. Yeah, yeah 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 that's basically it which was somewhat of a comfort i guess i kind of vaguely did assume someone died in this play <laughs> i kind of assumed that too to be honest yeah yeah
0: and i think that's part of you know for gay audiences who do enjoy this story part of it is that it didn't have the characters killed it didn't have them be for the most part the subject of um you know violence from straight characters obviously there is one exception to that Uh but you know the ways in which the straight character in this movie is the outsider Mm -hmm. um, yeah i mean if there's a straight if there is a straight (laughs) character which we're about to get into so Which I'm pretty skeptical about frankly <laughs> yeah so the character of alan who is uh michael's college roommate is yeah w- one example of the kind of self-loathing in the story where you could definitely argue and i think is a reasonable interpretation of the story that at the end he's slamming the closet door shut on himself yeah and obviously you've got michael and harold seemingly destined to continue their toxic relationship indefinitely as evidenced by harold's final line where he sort of says call you tomorrow before he walks out Mm. the door and bernard descending into a drunken stupor in shame after being humiliated by trying to call the man who he'd been in love with since he was a child so there's obviously a lot of negative emotions and negative arcs for these characters Mm. but i do think on the other hand you could argue that crowley shows hints of growth for some of the characters throughout the story
1: Well I think Larry and Hank, who are in quite like a negative place in their relationship at the start, do have an overall positive arc.
0: Yeah. Yeah, so Larry and Hank, who, you know, have gotten into a relationship where Hank has left his wife and kids to be with Larry, and Larry is consistently sleeping sleeping around and, you know, hooking up with other men, Hank doesn't seem to understand that. And it does seem like they come to some greater understanding of each Mm. other, and also a greater understanding of just the fact that they love each other.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, And that it's that they want a different thing out of a relationship, not that they don't want to be together.
0: Yeah. 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 We also, I would say, see a development in the relationship between Emery and Bernard, Mm -hmm. where, you know, after the big confrontation there, where Michael confronts Bernard on... The way in which he allows Emery to use racist language Mm. against him and Bernard is kind of like well yeah I allow him to do that and I do it to myself but you can't do it to me and I think following that scene we do get some reconciliation between Emery and Bernard and Emery apologizes and at least in the film version at the end they're seemingly affectionately having I was about to say breakfast but I, I mean I guess it's kind of breakfast a late night meal in a diner
1: yeah yeah Yeah, very tenderly yeah yeah which
0: is something you don't have in the original oh like Mm -hmm. yeah i guess yeah yeah they don't they don't show anything outside the apartment apartment. yeah that makes sense yeah Yeah. oh which speaking of the apartment i forgot to say the apartment uh is based on a specific apartment of an actress friend of crowley's and the outdoor scenes during the day at least in the original film are just at that apartment <laughs> oh, that's cool. and then they had to build a set yeah. for yeah. the interior obviously to like fit camera crews in yeah know?
1: yeah
0: and they had to build a set for the nighttime scenes yeah so they were just pouring buckets of water on them and stuff is- it actually looks pretty good for something from 1970 mm. um the storm scenes actually do look pretty good okay mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. is this literally the woman who was sailing the panama canal while he was <laughs>
0: I don't think so. <laughs> okay. Yeah, no, no, because that was his, like, that was the, like, Hollywood Georgian mansion. Oh, yeah, yeah, it's not an honest. apartment, yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: I do like the apartment. I like it has a spiral staircase. I think that's cool.
0: mm and then finally there's the relationship between Michael and Donald where I do think Donald is hard to get a read on but he does seem mm. to have gone beyond trying to understand or cure his homosexuality through therapy which is kind of I feel the direction they're trying to sort of go
1: Oh yeah and they... then
0: he sort of says that he's trying to understand himself more holistically like he's trying to go deeper than that when he's talking mm-hmm. about his therapy with Michael who kind of assumes yeah. that it's like oh well, your mommy and daddy made you gay. And he's like, no, let's go beyond that.
1: Yeah. I didn't even think about that when he talked, and this is so obvious now you say it, when he talked about being in therapy, I was just like, oh yeah, he's going to therapy. Whatever, people go to therapy. It did not occur to me that he's going to therapy because he's gay. And I feel like that makes his character make a lot more sense to me because I was kind of like, what? what's the point of this character? All these other characters have like kind of an aspect of gay life they're showing. And obviously that's an aspect of gay life that he's or gay experience that he's showing. And I didn't get that, but now I get it. <laughs>
2: But as Jason's saying, like, that's not why he's going. Like, that's the point that may or may not have been the point originally but now he's trying to work on like more sort of general goals about like his experiences with failure and things like that mm-hmm. which are probably connected to him being a gay man because that's obviously a big part of who he is it's not like he's trying to do conversion therapy or anything like that yeah and i think that your reading of that is really important to your reading of him at the very end of the film when michael's saying like if only we didn't hate ourselves quite so much and donald's saying yeah i know is you can kind of either read that as donald being like yeah i hate myself too or donald being like i've already completed this part of my life i've moved on past that i don't hate myself i'm working on myself as a human being not as a gay anymore Mm -hmm. and like wanting to be able to take michael into that with him but just not being able to
1: yeah no that
2: that's true and i don't feel like you know there's necessarily like a right reading there like i was also kind of like what is donald's deal but I don't know. It's interesting to think about it. Yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah. I do think Donald is the character who, if you just watch the film without thinking about it too closely, you kind of don't really get why he's there. Yeah. And I think the more you think about his character, the more there is going on.
2: What is Donald doing at this party? Because we were watching this and Michael's like, oh, you're like a day and a half early. And we're Mm. like, oh, but the party's tonight. So that must have been an exaggeration. Mm. But then when Harold shows up, he is like,
0: why are you here? And Donald's like, I'm not leaving. So Mm. it's like Donald isn't meant to be at this party. Yeah, this is something that's in the original 1968 play script, I think, from memory. Okay. Um, I apologize if I'm getting this wrong. Um, thank you to listener Aaron Starr, who sent us some very good resources for this episode. But in the script, When Donald asks who is going to be at the party, Michael crucially responds, oh, it's a bunch of Harold's friends.
2: Mm, Okay.
0: And so it's pretty clear that Donald is there to kind of be Michael's support Mm, Mm. in a way that I think is kind of implicit in any version of the text, but is much more explicit when he says harold's friends before he says oh it's the same old queens that you know Mm. Um.
1: yeah that's what i was gonna say and having not read the script i guess that does make it clear that it is in the 2020 version too he's kind of like a bit of a crotch for michael who Mm. is quite an anxious person as we see to have donald there to help him host the party
0: yeah yeah and I think this becomes clear as the play goes on and as the film goes on Michael is not super close with any of the other guys
3: mm, mm-hmm.
0: like he seems to have a reasonable relationship with Hank and Larry but like he clearly doesn't get along with Bernard or Emery huh. yeah
2: it's a little bit hard to tell because Michael's so meek to everyone mm, that's true mm. all the yeah, time absolutely yeah because it's a movie or a play about the relationships
1: between these nine men and kind of about every single cross point of those nine men like the relationships between any of those individual two men i think you'd have to like watch it a few times to actually focus on each one of them and kind of keep track of what they're for
2: and like how they interact mm. with everyone which is a level of subtlety that i did not go into this film expecting it to have to be honest yeah mm. yeah uh, so like cool
0: <laughs> yeah i think um that comes from the fact that apparently i think the original uh script for the play was like twice as long
1: uh-huh yeah. that would have been bad
0: oh absolutely (laughs) and so i think that what you see is there's some remnants of that in terms of the kind of hints at past relationships between characters that Mm. don't get expanded upon which Mm. maybe like accidentally works quite
2: well in that Mm. like obviously if you were just to spy on a dinner party from an outside perspective you would get a lot of hints of stuff that aren't Fully explained, which yeah. is something that could have felt very like messy and incomplete, but I feel actually that it works quite well here in just like suggesting stuff that definitely exists but that you don't get to see, not like just being loose ends.
1: yeah yeah yeah, that's true
2: which again is kind of like a level of sophistication in the writing that i did not expect to find here (laughs) like i i really didn't think this plane would be any good i think yeah i
1: think it's quite clear from this episode that we went in with very low expectations
0: i sort of didn't know what to expect or i knew about the famous line which i'm not going to repeat again Um, and that was kind of about it, so I figured it would be depressing, and that was kind of the vibe that I had.
3: Mm.
1: I think Um, I'd read a plot summary once, and I read the plot summary, and I was like, oh, this just sounds so awful. It just sounds like gay men being mean to each other, and like, I hate it. mm. But yeah, there was a lot more nuance in the relationships, and especially the first half was like a lot more fun in the way like they were mean to each other often in a way like you're just mean to your friends in a joking way and i it was like i much was more sincerely fun hope people.
2: you're not mean to any of your friends like this i mean
1: i'm personally not but some people are mean to their friends in a joking way in that way
2: but i i think that in this film it goes beyond what like entirely healthy but jokingly mean relationships can have <laughs>
0: That's yeah, I, that's, that's absolutely fair. true. Although you know, obviously, to some extent, that's just kind of a trope of film, right?
2: Yeah, but yeah. I hate it all the time. Oh yeah, yeah. definitely.
0: Yeah. But yeah, it is something where in fiction characters are so mean to each other yeah. in ways that like you just you should at least never accept from your friends in real life. Yeah, no.
1: yeah.
0: This yeah. is a PSA. <laughs> <laughs> <This> is, <yeah.
1: laughs> if your friendships are like the ones depicted in this film, time to find new friends. Yeah.
0: So yeah, I mean, even Michael himself arguably experiences somewhat of a change although I think Crowley deliberately leaves this quite ambiguous where Mm. he kind of has this breakdown and realizes he kind of needs Donald's help but then he does kind of snap back into his kind of snarky self yeah. yeah it's quite ambiguous and you sort of have his parting words with Harold where Harold is sort of like I'll call you tomorrow and you can kind of see that's one path but then there's also where he asks Donald you know will I see you next Saturday?"
2: Mm, yeah.
0: And I yeah. think there's definitely a way to kind of at least in the way that I thought about Michael as a character where you can kind of see these two paths and down mm. one path lies Harold and down the other path lies Donald. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah. I think
2: that really is a valid reading of the film, but I took it a little bit differently. So I'd like to just kind of say some things about Michael now.
0: Yeah, yeah, excellent. Please um,
2: do. so basically I think that that like, you've already noted a bunch of ways in which these relationships potentially progress or grow Mm. um and i kind of read them less as like these characters growing necessarily like i think the way i pictured it being is that these characters probably circled around these exact same Mm.
0: discussions all the
2: time and Mm. they you know shifted a little bit on that particular night but i didn't really picture anyone being any different after this dinner than when they started ultimately Mm. Um, but I still really liked all those moments we've listed because I think in order for this play or like film or whatever to be a representation of gay men that is not as shallow and mean it needed to really balance that you know those moments where they're just mean to each other and those moments where we see that these are actually people who really care about each other no matter how awful they are to each other and I think with like Bernard and Emery and Larry and Hank and even like Alan and the group as a whole that was done pretty well Mm. and then there was Michael who was just like the worst I was literally like the worst person um and i was pretty Emotionally dead to Michael until we get to the end and everyone leaves and he just breaks down and Mm. I was like okay like that yeah that sort of brought me back to center a bit and also Mm. by the way did finally convince me that Jim Parsons is quite a good actor (laughs) (laughs) and so like I think the key relationship that we see Michael have those moments of humanity in is with Donald sure Mm. but I also think that the other big relationship with him is Harold Mm -hmm. and I think that there are like a few moments where we see that these people who really love each other hmm. um and one is when harold gets the photo and he and michael just had like a huge barney at each other oh, and then yeah. he opens up the photo and he's like very tender over it and sounds like what does it say and he's like it was just something personal and all that and it was really nice hmm. and like i viewed that call me line as another sort of indication of that that even though they're Really, really vicious, and locked in this eternal game with each other, and all of that. Like they are just two people who love each other, and that's how I
0: read that. Yeah, and I mean, I definitely think there's something to the idea that, particularly in a 1968 context, Mm. that you didn't have as much of a choice in the people that you got to hang out with as a gay man in that time, because it was so hard to Mm. safely make those relationships. And mm. so there's a sense to which I sort of felt this thing where you've got this social circle, and you've just kind of got to make it work in a way that felt very, like, familial. It's
1: like being in high school. Mm.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Or, like, being in high school, like, yeah, where you well- just you know, you kind of, you're more willing to overlook people's flaws, you're more willing to overlook the kind of snarking back and forth and try and search for the good in that relationship and mm. And, mm. and treasure that.
2: And Harold does show up and say, like, you know, another dinner with the folks and mm. stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: I didn't oh. think of that because I know, like, throughout the movie, I did just kind of occasionally be like why don't they just leave they're not enjoying this party why don't they just go home but i mean i think that is a good answer it's like this is it for their social circle mm.
0: yeah like there's why no I... going where would they go exactly like where would they go they would go back out into straight society and it would be worse
1: yeah and then next time they wanted to hang out with some friends they'd come back to these guys so they may as well just stick with them yeah yeah
0: and i think that's quite horrible but oh, yeah. also like quite touching
1: mm, at the same time mm. i think that does also put like another layer on the fact that you're just stuck in this room with them because mm. they are also just stuck in this room yeah. and like that's a effect of it just being a play and that's how a play has to be but i think it does also put an interesting addition on
2: that i feel like we have sort of skirted around harold for a bit can we just talk directly about harold for a, a
0: while now
2: <laughs> i don't yeah. necessarily have anything constructive to say i just think we just need to just
0: sit with harold for a (laughs) bit yeah so zachary quinto and also the late leonard Frey, who portrays harold in the original film uh are both doing a lot
3: Mm, mm.
0: with their performances and i don't really know how to feel about that (laughs) um there's definitely some reviewers have talked about how he's kind of a deliberate artifice and Mm, michael mm. talks about that in the story like yeah. how you know how it kind of makes himself up to kind of protect himself and you can really see how he's like tightly coiled mm. and how he sort of glides around in the way that he is kind of like an ice skater which he the character has that as a background oh okay <laughs> uh, yeah yeah that's oh yeah, yeah, no, no, no. they mentioned that in both films. Because um, okay. the cake has a little ice skater. Oh, all
1: right. I don't the... really
0: get what that was about. It's just yeah. like
1: a throwaway line where, like, I think they call him, like, the ice queen or something like
2: that. Yeah, but yeah. that doesn't necessarily mean you had a professional career with an ice <laughs> skater. <laughs> no, 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 <laughs> but they,
0: they explain that immediately oh, afterwards. Okay.
2: Yeah. Yeah, 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 but it's one line, so you might didn't have missed
0: okay. it. But also, yeah, there is a lot of dialogue in this story. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> there really is. The, it goes really fast and snappy.
1: And also they do speak in a way that is not, I think, fully intelligible to us in 2020 because they speak, like, 1960s gay who had a lot of slang that we don't have. It's like we were saying, Jason and I, when we watched it, that they used turned on to mean got high, which led to some very confusing lines until we realized what that meant.
0: Yeah. I do love the, like, I'm turning on, you're just turning (laughs) line from Harold. Yeah. But yeah, I don't know, Eli. What did you think about I Like, he's
2: he's just, like, I mostly want to talk about Zachary Quinto here. Mm. He's just doing so much, and I feel like we need to just talk about that. Like, even just to say that. Because he's just doing so much yeah like please just go and look at literally any moment of zachary quinto speaking in this film (laughs) it's just so much he's wearing a green velvet suit and Um, like
1: colored like tinted glasses yeah because yeah i feel
2: like harold really stands apart from everyone else in the film where Mm. everyone else even though everyone is engaged in this kind of like toxic mess of a dinner party you do kind of really get the sense of their humanity and their genuine connections to each other like except for Harold. To like At least to, like, a much smaller degree. Mm. Like, he mm. does have his genuine moments. But he's just so, like, otherworldly mm. and so weird. And, like, by the end of it, I had just kind of convinced myself that the only way this character made sense is if he was, like, some Faye being or perhaps literally the devil <laughs> who had come down to just, like, mess with this group of men. And that <laughs> is my understanding of Zachary Quintos Harold. <laughs> and I think as well, like, you know, he doesn't like very rarely as i've already discussed very rarely drops his artifice or whatever mm. like mm. you mentioned those colored glasses that he's always kind of looking past or around and mm. he never takes those off mm. Mm-hmm.
3: Mm.
2: you know yeah um but yeah like you know he shows up and michael who has talked about how he's not drinking anymore immediately starts drinking and they immediately get into this like argument about religion and i'm like it's true that's the devil <laughs> <laughs> Like, some kind of, like, Neil Gaiman Sandman-esque type devil. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I no, I see it. Yeah, I
0: mean, and definitely the scene where the storm hits, yeah. and everyone's, like, frantically scampering about, and you cut to Harold, and he is just sitting there with his cigarette, yeah. already inside, yeah, perfectly dry, yes. perfectly presented. I'm obsessed with him. And it's like, how did you do that, Harold? <laughs> did you just teleport?
1: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, He controls the weather.
0: His
2: dialogue was also just like so much worse than it needed to be to fully carry off this
0: character. Mm -hmm. It
2: was quite bad. Someone needs to do a rewrite.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I do think it's interesting that they kind of present Harold in the play as the only person who can kind of rile up Michael and then win against Michael. and then win yeah in conversations because Michael is very ruthless yeah. and cutting in his remarks but I don't think they give Harold enough good one lines no mm. it's the mm.
2: thing where like I, and I don't mean to be like mean here but that Harold is clearly smarter than the playwright was yeah oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah. 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 I think that's true which obviously is just a very difficult <laughs> position to find yourself in as a writer and yeah you didn't pull it off like I think it works enough you me- you understand what's meant to be happening here and mm. there are just so many moments of like that was terrible actually and you yeah. all reacted
1: as though it was good yeah like and as though I, it was like
2: think, witty or cutting mm. yeah.
0: and i think yeah zachary quinto is doing a lot of work with his mm. acting but yeah. i don't think he's got the right yeah. scripts to work with
2: and i guess it, it somewhat works in that you know that like all of his characters are plastered <laughs> so like <laughs> I guess yeah. on that level it's fine. That was actually an acting choice I loved by Zachary Quinto right near the end where he gives his big speech about like you're warning me, I'm warning you, I'm the only one who can beat you type thing. And then he gets up and he like stumbles cuz he's trashed and I was like that was brilliant.
0: <laughs> yeah. So I feel- good. I do feel like in this version uh, they're much obviously drunker and it makes a lot of the why don't they just leave make a lot more sense Mm. so like particularly Alan um, I think Brian Hutchison does an amazing job as Alan and just the early scene where he is like trying to get another drink and he's like oh I can't find the scotch and the bottle is in his hand Mm, um, that's not in the original film Okay, yeah, and I think that really just like illustrates how much of a mess he is Mm. right from the i also assume he showed up drunk yeah, oh,
2: yeah i absolutely. can't remember if that's canon but like he definitely did i think it's implied yeah 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 yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: And, yeah and i think the play would not make sense if they were any less drunk like they have to be
2: trashed for this script for the actions in the script to make sense I Yeah. Yeah, 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 and a thing that I really didn't expect to work for me in this film and that increasingly did as the film went on is its, like, comedic tone mm-hmm. where, like, this film opens and it looks like it's setting up a rom-com mm-hmm. with their, all their little, like, things about them going about their day before they meet for this party, and I was immediately so mad about it because I knew it was about to be, like, vicious and emotional, mm. and I felt like there's no way that you can have that intro to this film and not treat what is to come with, like, insufficient seriousness and i feel like they kind of found the balance Mm, mm. most of the time but like not quite
0: yeah no the intro it does it it makes you think of like love actually (laughs) yeah it is exactly you know those kind of ensemble cast interwoven rom-com narrative yeah that's totally i had i was trying to think what it made me think of like Mm. in the back of my head percolating around there but thank you for bringing that up but yeah like so
2: for example this is still pretty early in the film but after alan like assaults emery Mm-hmm. um and emery's in the bathroom like dabbing the blood off his face mm. and alan bursts in because he's gonna throw up mm. like emery like screams and just like oh she's after me again and like jumps into the closet mm. and i'm like that's not funny <laughs> i think emery is meant to be understood as genuinely feeling fear in that moment mm. and i'm like that's not you can't have that five minutes earlier be a big serious turning point in the film and now be played for laughs Mm. And I was like very mad
0: at it. I didn't mm. think it was a good choice at all. Yeah. Yeah. I, well, and specifically the jumping back in the closet yeah. thing mm. like, kind mm. of adds a layer to the yeah, joke, which is weird, um, um, which I don't think is in the original film.
3: Mm.
0: Like found, like the scene is still there, but I don't think yeah. he jumps specifically back into a closet.
1: Yeah. I found that line very confusing because I just like could not read what tone they wanted me to take from it. Mm. I was like, mm. is this a joke? Is Emery genuinely fearful? Like, and, and I, I feel like it's. Not necessarily one or
2: the other, and that just makes it very weird. And I do think that is kind of, like, the big weakness of the film, is that, like, whilst a lot of the time they do find a middle ground to walk on, the overall tone of this film just isn't quite cohesive, or, like, even if you wanted a film that had, like, a dramatic turn at some point, like, it's just not... I don't think they really put enough thought or care into Mm. how that was going to be. Yeah. Um, So I do, before we move on from that want to mention my favorite line that began to defrost me to this film and made me literally laugh out loud which is when harold <laughs> mentions alice b Toklas's opium-based lasagna <laughs>
1: i did not expect to laugh out loud in this movie and i did several <laughs>
0: times and that was I, nice I, I was so pleased with that that was so funny yeah, yeah no there are some genuinely good one-liners though.
2: yeah there are like there is some really good dialogue there's also just like also a lot of terrible dialogue yeah like mm-hmm. <laughs> Poor boy. I was surprised. How could this boy's face compare to my soul?
1: (laughs) (laughs) I was surprised that they didn't really like I think there's a few lines here and there that are added or taken away, but they didn't really rewrite any of the dialogue to make this twenty twenty version. They just picked up the script and they're like, Yep, let's go with it.
3: Yeah.
2: And having said that though, like I know this is still set in the original time period but can you imagine if they tried to like update it in 2020 if I the dialogue and someone was like being bitchy about someone's Twitter handle or something like oh that would be disgusting so let's just be thankful they didn't go too far the other way
0: that's true that's true yeah they did what they did was they removed some of so there's a lot more theatre references Uh in the original both from Michael and also from Emery so it does kind of remove a little bit there's a dynamic in the original between Michael and Emery where they should be able to connect on their shared love of theatre but Michael mm. mocks and denigrates Emery uh, over mm. that and it's sort of like well the specific things you like
3: oh,
1: okay.
0: are trashy oh, so, yeah, yeah. Um, which I think is an interesting arc but also I think it was probably a good choice to remove a lot of those kind of weird niche historical theatre references yeah. that most of the audience are not going to get Yeah. You know, there's enough still there to kind of give you an idea of who Michael is.
2: I will also say that at some points it really weirdly seems like this had originally been a musical and they didn't want it to be anymore. (laughs)
1: <laughs> I know that I walked in so I watched just the ending of this film because I walked in while Eli and Jason were watching it and then I watched the actual film in full but I walked in at a time when Harold just says a few lines that sound like very very musical and he's kind of intoning them and he just always sounded like he was going to break into song <laughs> and I was like is is that what happens here?
2: Because <laughs> he only speaks in riddles because he's yeah. from Satan. the Sealy
0: Court <laughs> <laughs> uh yeah no it definitely does have musical vibes and i mean like the uh original film uh opens with them just playing the song anything goes in full (laughs) over the kind of opening montage (laughs) yeah there's a few other kind of musical sequences Mm. So there's quite a lot of music in both. Although I think they didn't reuse any of the music from the original. I think they chose different songs, which is interesting. I didn't read anything about like why they did that, but I would be interested if anyone knows anything about that.
1: I don't think it would be better as a musical. I think it would be oh no, no worse no, absolutely as a musical.
0: <laughs> but yes, yeah, so I like the big thunderstorm moment felt very much like a like a kind of crescendo moment in a musical. Mm, yeah. mm. And it makes it very obvious watching the film that it's based on a play when you get that Mm. kind of moment. I do feel it was less obviously based on a play than Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, but Mm. still fairly obviously.
2: Both engendered that same feeling of, oh, God, we're going to be in this room the entire time. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like although they're very, very different, they're also
1: very, very similar because they're also completely about this group of people who are kind of friends, but kind of also have a lot of antagonism and are stuck in this room and you're just going to watch that fall apart. Like, it, Yeah, you're exactly watching the same an oppressed
2: group, like, struggle with outside society, but also take shots at each other. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you could yeah, do a English studies comparison <laughs> to, if you wanted to get, like, originality points. Yeah. Yeah. And the other, like, incredibly pretentious comment I wanted to make, and then I'm out of comments, is that um, it reminded me of Plato's Symposium. <laughs>
0: because... <laughs> it's you are not the only Oh, oh i'm sure i'm sure i'm
2: not the only one who's like that type of
0: gay uh, in that
2: it's a bunch of men have a dinner party in which they play a game where they have to do something talking about love and i think we should also with this same cast why not uh make an adaptation of plato's
0: symposium <laughs> wow um yeah no i definitely heard i think harold referred to as socrates in one review
2: okay yeah, I, yeah okay. I, I don't i guess that's don't correct on that but yeah uh, yeah
0: <laughs> there was de- there was definitely some allusions to, yeah
2: i mean um, i it was like a easy enough comparison to make that i wondered if it was like intentional to be honest on the part of the playwright but hmm. also that could just be me being insane <laughs> <laughs> maybe um, so that's all i wanted to say hmm.
0: so i think in the end so th- this film seems to be doing pretty well obviously the Broadway revival went pretty well, and you know they won a Tony and they got a fair bit of publicity about it. Um, and it's now you know a Netflix film with an accompanying mini documentary. And I do think that it plays a lot better in 2020 than it perhaps did in 1970 because mm. Crowley's intimate, self-reflective, and somewhat scathing look at gay life does not now hold the burden of being the flag bearer for queer Mm -hmm. representation in media in a way that the film did at the time Mm -hmm. you know this story could never hold up a political movement and it didn't Um, (laughs) and there certainly remain some problematic elements although I would say neither version like ignores or you know minimizes Michael's racism or the kind of hierarchical homophobia that sees Emery pilloried by the rest of the men you know I'd say those things are dealt with maybe imperfectly
3: yeah yeah
0: but yeah I think the story fits more comfortably into a kind of milieu of queer content and certainly mm. it is continuing to resonate with new generations of gay men like the cast of this film um clearly had a personal connection with the story yeah. and mm. they spoke at length about how it kind of you know sort of shows how far we've come but also how many things remain the same and there's kind of a comfort in that yeah i just generally think that it holds up better as one piece of queer content in a sea of it which thankfully we now have even if it's still probably more like a large lake <laughs> <laughs> that's it that. oh okay cool. Finn.
3: <laughs> Finn, yeah.
0: as michael would say <laughs> Fini. so with that we have been queer as fiction i am jason
1: i'm alice i'm eli
0: if you've enjoyed this episode you can find more of our content on podbean spotify apple podcasts or wherever good podcasts are found You can also follow us on social media as Queer as Fact on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. Uh, If you would like to support us financially, you can buy Queer as Fact merch on our Redbubble store and gain perks like voting on episode topics by subscribing to our Patreon. If you can't support us financially but would still like to help us out, we really appreciate reviews on platforms like Apple Podcasts, They really help us reach a wider audience. Links to all of these things, as well as source documents, if you want to learn more about our episode subjects, can be found on our website, queerisfact.com. We would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of this land, the people of the Kulin Nation, and pay our respects to their elders, past and present. We acknowledge and uphold their continuing relationship to the land on which this podcast is recorded. QueerisFact will be back on February 1st with an episode of Russian composer Pyotr Tchaikovsky. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.